Well, that is going to be the new normal for a while, if you know what I mean. And uh, that's not all that, is it, huh? This is our first Sunday without uh, our beloved Blake Boyce, who was uh, our music minister for seven years. And uh, we had the privilege of sending him out last Sunday night. And um, he's down with his uh, folks at their church in Houston this morning. And uh, they're going to be heading out uh, this afternoon over to Elgin, where uh, Becca's folks are from. And then tomorrow morning, they're going to start to drive to California. So just want to remind you of uh, Blake and Becca to be praying for them these next couple of days as they travel uh, for a safe journey there and a great uh, transition to their new ministry there at uh, Grace Church of the Valley in Kingsburg. But uh, we're so grateful that uh, God uh, knew that we were going to be needing someone to stand up in his place. And so when he provided Billy, he provided not only a youth pastor, but a guy who could also lead us in worship for a season. And so we're so grateful for that. And uh, the band has come around Billy, and they're excited to see how the Lord's going to use them in this uh, season of transition as we wait uh, for God to provide another music minister. And uh, just so you know, we got a line, uh, um, a line in out at the Master's College and their music department. They've got a great music department out there. We've also got a line in at Southern Seminary. They've got a great new uh, a, a music uh, major there um, at Southern Seminary, and so we're... Um, uh, calling around and, and just making uh, contact with as many people as possible and just seeing what the Lord uh, will do and, and, uh, and how He'll provide for us. So continue to pray for that as well. Well, this morning I want to begin a three-part series, uh, Lord willing, on what the Bible teaches regarding leadership in the local church. I've decided to call it a servant leadership as uh, the notes that hopefully you grabbed in the back show, uh, different than what the bulletin said. And uh, just to really set the, the mindset for any discussion of, of leadership in the local church, it needs to be understood as servant leadership. And so hopefully that will be the overarching theme of what we talk about uh, over the next uh, few weeks. And my motive for this series is, is both theological and practical. Uh, let's t- talk about the theological first, and then I'll um, really, by way of application, talk about the practical towards the end. But theologically, one of the essentials of a strong, healthy, God-honoring church is biblically qualified leadership. Someone uh, asked me several years ago, they called and they said, hey, Ken, we uh, really appreciate your church. We appreciate what the Lord is doing at Lakeside and and, uh, we wish our church was more like Lakeside. And and could you give us uh, maybe some some ideas as to what you would attribute God's blessing to Lakeside Bible Church. And I said, absolutely. I said, I think it's a, there's a few things that come immediately to my mind. Number one uh, is a regenerate membership. In other words, that the people that come to the church are truly saved. They're not just coming and checking it off and just doing it because that's all they've ever done. I mean, I think that's where it all starts, right, is that you have a regenerate membership. Not that there's not unbelievers in our midst on any given Sunday, Wednesday, but the majority of the people that are committed to that church uh, are saved. They're truly, genuinely born again. And then the second thing I said was, was, I think you need a biblically qualified leadership team, a biblically qualified leadership team. Uh, why? Why would I say that as second only to that the people are saved? Uh, because every church is a reflection of its leadership, good or bad. And, and as the leaders go, the, the church goes. And so the effectiveness of any church, I believe, is directly related to the godliness or Christ's likeness of its leadership. Let me say that again. The effectiveness of any church is directly related to the godliness and Christ-likeness of its leadership. And yet it's sad to me to think that, that this issue of church leadership, or if you want to call it church government, um, is one that, that many Christians never give any thought to. To some, the leadership or organizational structure of the church is as irrelevant as the color of the carpet. And it's like, is, is it really that big of a deal? Does it really matter that much? But we need to realize that how a local church is led, how a local church is, is governed is extremely significant. And the first question we should ask ourselves is, does the Bible clearly delineate 
how the local church is to be led and governed. I mean, does the Bible tell us uh, how we uh, as a church should be led and how we should be governed? There's a man named Alexander Strzok who's um, been used greatly by the Lord to write on the subject of church leadership and church government, and he's written a, a couple books, one on biblical eldership and one on biblical deaconship. And, and in his book, Biblical Eldership, which, by the way, the subtitle is this, An Urgent Call to Restore Biblical Church Leadership. And this is what he says, quote, many contemporary scholars say that the New Testament is ambiguous or silent regarding the topic of church government and conclude that no one can insist upon a biblical model of church government for all churches because the Bible doesn't. To hear some scholars speak, he goes on, you would think that the Bible doesn't say a word about church elders or church government. And in that context, he quotes one seminary professor who expressed this view uh, concisely. He says this, quote, it appears likely that there was no normative pattern of church government in the apostolic age and that the organizational structure of the church is no essential element in the theology of the church. Do you agree with that or not? I hope you don't agree with that. I think it's interesting in most of the systematic theology books that I have on my shelves in my library, when it comes to ecclesiology or the doctrine of the church, and and specifically the topic of church government, the authors typically present several different forms of government that in their minds are all equally viable options and, and or should be blended together into one. And those options are basically three. There, there are three basic forms of, of church government in, in, that you could propose. Um, really, there's, there's two extremes and there's one in the middle, um, which I think is the biblically balanced model. But the two extremes are what you could call a monarchy on one end of the extreme, right, end of the spectrum. And the other end of the spe- spectrum would be a democracy, in other words, you've got the, 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 the churches that are, are run by the pastor. He's the king. He's the head honcho. And what he says goes. And then you have churches where whatever the congregation wants, they get. It's the, the, the pastor rule or the congregational rule. There's, there, there's, uh, there, there's the authority vested in the one man, the one pastor, or there's the authorities vested in the majority. The majority rules. And, um, and so you've got, um, you know, the, the CEO model over here, and then you've got the U.S. government model over here. It's basically what you got. Is there something more biblical, something more balanced? Yes. And we're going to see this morning that, that the, the, the Bible talks about not a monarchy, not a democracy, but a plurality of godly men leading a church who don't uh, wield their power with this authority of the the dictator or, hey, let's just see what the people want. But there's a unanimity principle where they pray and they study God's word and they work towards agreement, total agreement on all issues related to the church. And instead of being a CEO or representatives of the people like we do in our government we 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 vote for representatives right no these people represent god to the people as his under shepherds that's what we see in scripture when i was um candidating uh throughout the country uh looking for a, a position to serve as a senior pastor in a church. I'd got kicked out of the nest by my senior pastor uh, back in California. I was a youth pastor for a number of years. And he said, you need to go be a senior pastor. And I said, okay. And uh, I said, uh, well, how, where do I start? And so I began to go around Canada and different churches. And one of my standard questions that I would ask a church, this was more than uh, them just asking me questions. I wanted to ask them questions. And one of my first questions I would always ask them is, how is your church governed? I want to know what you believe about church government. And one church replied, quote, we're an elder-ruled church, but the congregation has the final say. I was like, okay, I've never heard that before. That seems like a a blending of, of, of different forms of church government in my mind. And so, needless to say, um, when, uh, when I was asked by, 
this, this group of, of leaders um, in our initial meetings, if, if there was anything I didn't agree with their constitution or their bylaws, I was very upfront and said, listen, I, I think this is very unclear who's in charge here. I, mean, I read here, it looks like the pastor's in charge. I, I read in this section, it looks like the, the, the board's in charge, the elders and the deacons. And then I look over here and it looks like the congregation is in charge. And I said, I think this is a weakness. This is, a, this is going to be a problem. And I expressed my desire to lead the church in a more biblical perspective over time. And yet in that process, the church began to unravel at the seams. And in my opinion, the, the ultimate undoing of that church was the result of an ambiguous leadership structure. And when push came to shove, no one knew for sure who was in charge. No one knew who had the final say. Did the pastor have the final say? Did the elders have the final say? Did the congregation have the final say? And at the end, they were all jockeying, if you will, for position. And I think this situation serves as a good example that when various forms of government, church government, are blended together, it muddies the minds of everyone in the church. And a lack of clarity results in a a lack of unity, and that's why I've been so committed from day one here at Lakeside to make sure that the leadership structure of this church is clearly defined in everyone's mind so there'll be never any question or confusion as to who's in charge, who has the final say. Now you tell me who has the final say at this church. God, through his word. We all know that. The Bible is the final authority in this church. The buck stops with the Bible. The buck stops with God. And the Bible says that there is one person in charge of the church. And who is that? Whose church is it? Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ is the head who ultimately rules over the church. Jesus said, I will build Ken Ramey's church. I will build this group of people in Montgomery, Texas's church. No, he said, I will build what? My church. This is his church. And according to Ephesians 1, God put all things in subjection under his feet, under Christ's feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 18, it says that he also, Christ, is the head of the body, the church, that he might have first place in everything. And so Christ rules over the church. This is a, you might might have thought this is an elder rule church. Well, no, this is a Christ rule church. First and foremost, this is a Christ rule church. However, we also see in God's word that Christ mediates his rule, his authority in the church through humble servant leaders called elders and deacons who are entrusted by the Holy Spirit with the responsibility of overseeing and shepherding and managing Christ's flock. And someday, those elders and those deacons will be held accountable before God. Turn it to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10 to get, a, to get some insight here into Christ's perspective on on those who would serve him by serving his body, these under-shepherds, these servants. If you remember in Mark chapter 10, the disciples were jockeying for position. They were arguing about who was the greatest, and, and, and some of them even had the audacity to say to Jesus, hey, Jesus, when you come into power, when you take over Jerusalem and you, and you rise to the throne and you defeat Rome, w- would you let us sit on your right and left hand? And so Jesus was grieved by the pride and the arrogance and the presumption of his disciples and said in verse 40, but to sit on my right, on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those whom it has been prepared for. Hearing this, the 10 began to feel indignant with James and John. And so Jesus says, oh, great, man, we got we to gotta fix this problem here. These guys are, are totally thinking about leadership in, 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 a, in a totally wrong way. They've got it upside down. And so he provides a corrective lesson here in verse 42, calling them to himself. Jesus said to them, you know that those who, recognize, those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great men exercise authority over them. He says, you know how the world's 
world's view of leadership is, that, that these people who are rulers, it's all about power, and, and they lord it over those that are under them, and they're very authoritarian in the way that they lead, but, verse 43, it is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be, what, slave of all. He says, you guys got this all wrong. You're, th- you're thinking about this all wrong. You're thinking about ruling and being over people and how many people are going to be under you and, 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 and true leadership. My kind of leadership, Christ says, is not how many people are serving you, serving under you. How, it's, it's how many people are you serving. That's true leadership. And then he uses himself as an example, verse 45, for even the Son of Man himself, he's talking about himself, did not come to be served, but to what? To serve and to give his life a ransom for many. In other words, guys, I want you to lead others like I have led you. And I didn't come here to have you serve me. I came here to serve you. And of course, the ultimate example of that, well, I shouldn't say the ultimate, one practical example of that was when he washed their feet. When they should have been washing his feet and serving him, he took the towel in the basin and he washed their feet and then ultimately he was killed. He sacrificed his life for them. And so this is where we find this principle mainly of, 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 of servant leadership. One of the ones that was, uh, one of the men who was uh, listening to this at the time was obviously Peter. Turn over to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. It's interesting, the transformation that we see uh, taking place in Peter's life from really what he was like in the Gospels and the book of Acts uh, the apostle with the foot-shaped mouth, right? He was always uh, getting himself in trouble, saying things he shouldn't say, and 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 whacking off people's ears, and you know, uh, doing all this stuff. And then you, when you get to First Peter, when he writes his his first epistle, it's just precious. I mean, you just see this man who who has just been humbled before the Lord. He's a different guy. And listen to the the humility and the tenderness with which he talks about shepherding the sheep. And, and by the way, um, the last time we see Peter uh, in, in the gospel is in the gospel of John, when Jesus is restoring him at the side of the, on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. And remember, he, he asked him three times, Peter, do you love me? And one time for every time he denied Christ. And, and, and uh, Peter responded, yes, you know I love you. And every time he told him to do what? To feed his sheep, to shepherd his sheep. And so he was turning Peter from a fisherman to a shepherd. And so Peter got that. He understood that. And, and I think things clicked that day on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. And as he was now writing to fellow elders, notice he says in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. In other words, I was there. I watched it go down. I witnessed uh, Christ suffer for us. He said, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. In other words, not with impure motives, not for what you can get out of it, but purely motivated. And then notice verse 3, not, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. wonder where he learned that. Not lording it over like the rulers of the world do back in Mark chapter 10. He heard that loud and clear. He says, hey, we're not to, to lord it over those allotted to our charge, but we're to, to lead by example. And verse 4, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. 
This is just one of many passages in the New Testament here, 1 Peter 5, that, that clearly mandates and models that Christ intended His church to be led, governed, ruled, however you want to say it, by a team of exemplary Christ-like under-shepherds called elders. Now, I want to go back here to the book of Acts and just, just walk with me for a few minutes. Uh, just, I'm just going to read verse after verse after verse, and I want you to see the pattern that is laid, clearly laid out for us in the New Testament uh, regarding church leadership, church government. I mean, it could not be any clearer. Just notice Acts 11, verse 30. The church at Antioch, it says, And this they did, sending in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the, who? Elders. Chapter 14, verse 20. But while the disciples stood around him, he got up and entered the city. This was after Paul was stoned. The next day he went away with Barnabas to Derbe. After they had preached the gospel of that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. When they had appointed, had appointed who? Elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they believed. Look at chapter 15, verse 1. Some men came down from Judea, began teaching the brethren, unless you were circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. Verse 4, when they had arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders... Uh, Verse 6, the apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. We're seeing a transition here, by the way, from the apostles to local church elders. Verse 22, then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, Judas called Barsabas, and Silas leading leading men among the brethren. The apostles and the brethren who are elders. Again, mentioning that. Chapter 16, verse 4. Now, while they were passing through the cities, they were delivering the decrees which had been decided upon by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem for them to observe. And then jump to chapter 20, verse 17. One of the clearest references to local church elders uh, is here Paul uh, giving his farewell to the elders in Ephesus. He was traveling through uh, Ephesus on his way uh, to Rome. Uh, in fact, he didn't even make it to Ephesus. He called them to Miletus. It says from uh, verse 17, from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. Verse 28, he begins this great exhortation, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among whom which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to purchase the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. He exhorts them to guard themselves because from among them... Um, their own selves, among the elders, um, some would arise who would draw the disciples after them. That was scary. They were to be on the alert that some of them were going to go bad, if you will. Look at Philippians chapter 1. Again, just an introduction, just a simple introduction we can learn a lot from. Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, Paul just in passing, as it were, Paul and Titus, excuse me, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. Overseers is another word for elders. There's the word episkopos, there's the word presbyteros, there's the word poimen. In the Greek, all three words used interchangeably for this office of elder. And then look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, we see just an example of how the church was instructed to relate to their leadership First uh, Thessalonians 5, verse 12, and so there's, it's obviously, there's assumed that there would be leadership in the church. It says, but we request, this is First Thessalonians 5, 12, we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction, and that you esteem them very highly in, the love, in love because of their work, live in peace with one another. And then we come to First, and Se- uh, first Timothy And uh, we have really the clearest teaching in all of Scripture uh, on the role of an elder and deacon. We have here in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, uh, Paul uh, Paul had left Timothy in Ephesus, 
after the wheels fell off and as he had prophesied, as he had warned them that some of the elders would turn bad, would, would become heretical and lead people astray, two of which were Hymenaeus and Alexander. And so these guys were disciplined. Paul disciplined these guys out of the leadership. Uh, and then it was left Timothy with the responsibility to, to, to uh, install new elders. And so he gave them some instructions here as to how to go about doing that. He said, 1 Timothy 3, verse 1, it's a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, there's the word episkopos for elder, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, so he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. And then notice, right on the heels of that, he goes on to give the qualifications for deacons. Deacons, likewise, verse 8, must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. These men must also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach." Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Deacons must be husbands of only one wife and good managers of their children and their own households. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. And so some very clear criteria. Here you go, Timothy. Don't just, don't just appoint any guy. Uh, you're not just looking for warm, breathing people who are willing to serve. You're looking for biblically qualified men uh, who meet these standards, these criteria. Notice chapter 4, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 14. Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, he's saying to Timothy, which was bestowed on you through the prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. Again, the group of elders, the pres- this is where we get, of course, the Presbyterian form of government. Some of you are Presbyterian in background, and that's why you're very um, uh, comfortable with elder rule, because that's how the Presbyterian church uh, is set up. Uh, notice chapter 5, some more directions or instruction regarding elders. First Timothy 5.17, the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor. By the way, if you have a problem with the word elder rule, um, you have a problem with the Bible because that's what it says. The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. I think sometimes we want to soften that elder rule concept and say, well, we're just an elder-led church. We, 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 want to, we don't want to say rule. It sounds authoritarian. Well, hopefully we're not that way because we understand we're supposed to be leading as humble shepherds, humble examples, Right? But this is what the Bible says. Verse 18, for the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he's threshing the grain and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. In other words, somebody just can't come and try to sabotage the ministry of an elder by just bringing some accusations against them without corroborating evidence. Are you the only one that feels this way? Are you the only ones that have seen this, have heard this? Uh, where, where are the witnesses? Where are the other people who can verify this? And of course, that was a, an Old Testament principle, right? That whenever an accusation was made against a Jew, there needed to be at least two or three witnesses. Verse 20, those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all, so that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of his chosen angels to maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing in a spirit of partiality. In other words, don't, um, don't let an elder off the hook. Don't, 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 be, uh, don't be harder on other people. Don't go soft on the elder. In other words, treat them, hold them to the same standard that... That, that, that everyone else is held to in the church. In fact, hold them to a higher standard. Verse 22, do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily and thereby share responsibility for the sins of others. Keep yourselves free from sin. And then we jump over to Titus. Again, these are what are considered the, the, the pastoral epistles. Lots of information, lots of instruction here on, on, on pastoral ministry, the, the local church, and really 
the, the reason why I taught First and Second Timothy and Titus years ago is, is because I thought this, this, this was just uh, biblical ecclesiology. This is, this is all church life, 101. And so, and, and besides, I was only going to be a young pastor once, and so I wanted to go through it when I was young, uh, like Paul was teaching to Timothy. But notice in Titus, he says this, he's left Titus on the island of Crete. Why? He says, for this reason, verse 5, Titus 1, 5, for this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, now let me be specific, again, not just any warm-breathing guy, right, who's willing to serve, Right? If, he says, namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion, for the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. So here is the second list of qualifications. We got 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 uh, for uh, the, the criteria for uh, uh, an elder. And then just jump over to Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7. Again, just some implied principles here regarding church leadership. Hebrews 13, 7, it says, remember those who led you. So again, it's inherent that somebody's leading you who spoke the word of God to you, who are teaching you God's word, and considering the result of their conduct. In other words, again, they're leading you by example. It's not just what comes out of their mouth, not what they say behind the pulpit, but how they live their life when they step out from behind the pulpit, right? The the result of their conduct, consider that, and imitate their faith. Follow them as they follow Christ. And then in the same context there, look at verse 17. This is Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. And then finally, James chapter 5. James chapter 5, verse 14 Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord, and the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven. And that brings us full circle back to 1 Peter chapter 5, right? Verse 1, Therefore I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, in other words, these guys aren't the chief shepherd, they're the under shepherds. When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. And then it says in verse five, you younger men, likewise, be subject to your who? Elders, and all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. I read all those, and I know that's very kind of academic and very Bible study-ish and just kind of going through, you know, all these verses. It's, it's a really kind of sensory overload, but I just wanted to make the point that the concept of elder leadership just jumps out from the pages of Scripture. I mean, you can't miss it. It's all over the place. I mean, it couldn't be any clearer. In fact, Alexander Strzok says this. He says, quote, The New Testament offers more instruction regarding elders than on other important church subjects such as the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Day, baptism, and spiritual gifts. Wow. Must be important. Is the Lord's Supper important? Yeah. Is baptism important? Yeah. Are spiritual gifts important? Absolutely. So if God talked more about elders and all those things. Do you think how the church is led, how the church is governed is important? Absolutely. John MacArthur wrote a great book years ago called The Master's Plan for the Church. 
And this is what he said, quote, proper biblical government by elders is the only pattern for church leadership given in the New Testament. Nowhere in scripture do we find it a local assembly ruled by majority opinion or by one pastor. And so it's without question that God intended each local church to be autonomously led and governed by elders who are assisted in their work by another group of godly men, Christ-like men, called deacons. The, the word autonomously that I threw in there, you're going, what does that mean? Well, what it means is that I don't think God ever intended for our church to be ruled over by a group of leaders somewhere in Alabama or somewhere in California or somewhere in Michigan, right? That, that we are a local, an independent, autonomous, right? There's autonomy here within this body. In other words, Christ rules over us. He's the one that holds us accountable through his word. Uh, and, and again, there's some churches today, some denominations that have this ecclesiastical structure where, you know, there's a pastor in, in that particular local church, but he submits to the bishop over here and the bishops over all these different churches. And again, that's just an organizational structure, well-intended, right, to just help the church stay organized and, and things like that. But I don't think it's, we, we don't see that reflected. That was more of a, I think, a tradition that was added throughout church history. But it seems that God's best would be that, a, that each individual local church would be autonomously or independently led and governed by a group of godly men within that church. And the scripture calls them elders and deacons. Now, we've talked about elders a bit. Let me just change the subject and focus a little bit on, uh, on the deacons. Deacons are uniquely gifted and qualified by God to serve alongside the elders in order to relieve them of the temporal matters of the church so they can focus on their spiritual priorities uh, to the flock as shepherds. And, and uh, we, we see this in Acts chapter 6. Turn back to Acts chapter 6. We've already seen the, the two office, uh, offices mentioned in Philippians 1.1. We've seen them the, the criteria or the qualifications delineated in 1 Timothy 3. But, but notice Acts chapter 6, and some would say that Acts chapter 6 does not um, have actual deacons here, but I think, uh, we can, I think we'd all agree that this is at least a prototype of the role that deacons would play uh, in the life of a church and coming alongside elders. Notice in Acts chapter 6, verse One, now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were not, excuse me, because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. And so what was happening here, the church was was growing like wildfire and they were literally um, all gathered together and they were serving one another and sharing food with one another and, and it was almost a very, very similar to a communal lifestyle here early on. And, and so it, it appeared that the, the, the Hellenistic Jews, um, the, the ones who were living outside of the, the promised land, outside of Jerusalem or outside of Israel, uh, were being overlooked. They were, being, uh, they were getting the short end of the deal. They were being left out. Uh, they, they, didn't, they weren't getting either the same amount of food or they weren't getting any food. And, and so they finally said, hey, this is not fair. And so the people wanted to remedy uh, this, this problem. And so th- this complaint or problem arose. And notice what happened. The, the, the apostles took the responsibility to respond to that complaint and resolve that problem. So the 12 summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, it is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. In other words, they weren't saying, hey, you know what? We're too important to, to serve tables and, and to care for the widows. So you're going to have to get somebody else to do it because that's, that's below our pay grade, you know? We're, we've, we've arisen, you know, we're, we're, we're too high up on the, on the flagpole to be doing that menial work. No, not at all. He said, listen, it's not... 
right for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. Hey, we got a problem. We know there's a problem. We hear the complaints and they're right. Something's got to get fixed here. And so let's fix the problem. This is how we want to do it is, hey, find some, some godly men that we can entrust with this task. Verse 4, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. In other words, we don't want to get sidetracked, uh, distracted from what we know our priorities are, and they're, they're twofold. It's to pray and to preach. Verse 5, the statement found approval with the whole congregation. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Pecorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, and these they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. Notice, I love verse 7, and the word of God kept on spreading, and the number of disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. In other words, as the church was growing, right, oftentimes you experience birth pains, or growing pains, I should say. And that was part of the problem here. And so they resolved that problem. They got it managed. They got it handled. And, 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 and uh, they got past that hurdle. And, and they continued to flourish and to thrive. And again, I don't think these are deacons, official deacons in that regard, the office of deacon. But clearly this is an example or a prototype of, of the role that deacons would serve alongside elders in the church. Now, unfortunately, because they're is a limited amount of instruction in the Bible about the office of deacon. Uh, really, we're limited to 1 Timothy chapter 3, uh, what I already read to you, verses 8 through 13. I think churches sometimes get confused about the role of deacons in the church. And I think, again, churches, we, we tend to go to extremes, okay? We, we, we're not good at being balanced, okay? So the, 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 the one or two extremes in regards to deacons, okay? Some churches... Um, Consider the deacons the executive board of the church. Um, some of you have been in churches, I'm sure, where there was a pastor and then there was deacons. No elders, there was the pastor and there was deacons. Um, and really the deacons, in, in some sense, in some of those types of churches, were, were acting as elders, but they weren't called elders, they were called deacons. And so you've got this executive board uh, of the church that really um, provides their stamp of approval for the pastor, um, or they consult the pastor, or they're placed in competition. That this, this deacon board uh, are placed in competition with the elders. So if you have an elder board and then you have a deacon board, it's almost like you have the second board independent of the elders that that is there to provide checks and balances for the elder board. Because, you know, you can't just let the Senate go off and do their thing, and you can't let the House of Representatives, and so you've got to have checks and balances, so you can't just let the elders go off and do that. You've got to have some deacons, and they're going to hold them accountable. And listen, I'm not lying about this. I heard a, a true story of a church where the deacon board sued the elder board. I'm like, whoa, how did that happen? Craziness. And I think these, these kinds of church problems are caused by a misunderstanding of the role, not of deacons, but of elders. And if we get the elders' role right, th then the deacon role just, just falls naturally into place. The, the deacon, or the diaconate as it's called, is not a ruling or governing office. It's a serving role that complements the leading role of the elders. It's sort of like the husband and wife relationship where there's one who God has clearly ordained to be the leader, and there's those that come alongside to be the helpers. So that's one extreme, is to kind of put the, the deacons out there and, and kind of treat them as this executive board or in, in some way opposed to the elders. The, the other extreme is, is to emasculate the deacons and really demean the office of deacon by treating them as nothing more than glorified janitors or, or sanctified groundkeepers or financial officers. And I think churches that view deacons like that are missing out on the, the real ministry that God designed deacons to provide the, the, the church. And again, I mentioned Alexander Strzok, who's done a great work for the kingdom in writing on both um, eldership and, and deaconship. And uh, he has written really the best, I think, most comprehensive book on, on deacons that I know of. It's called Minister of Mercy, the New Testament deacon. And listen to what he says here. It's very good. 
He says, we must ask ourselves why God would demand that deacons meet specific moral and spiritual qualifications and undergo public examination like the pastors of the church. By the way, the only difference in the qualifications in 1 Timothy 3 between elders and deacons is that elders should be able to teach. That's not a requirement to be a deacon. Everything else is, is virtually the same. So he's saying, why would that be the case if all deacons do is wax floors or mow lawns? Anyone in the church or even people outside the church can do these types of jobs. And we actually hire someone to mow the yard. It's not like you need a deacon to do that, right? We, we hire somebody to do that. But the point is this. He says, my heartfelt burden is to help deacons get out of the boardroom or the building maintenance mentality and into the people serving mentality. Deacons are to be involved in a compassionate ministry of caring for the poor and needy. The deacon's ministry, therefore, is, that, is one that no Christ-centered New Testament church can ever afford to neglect. Christians today must understand the absolute necessity for and vital importance of New Testament deacons to the local church so that the needy, poor, and suffering of our churches are cared for in a thoroughly Christian manner. I love how our deacons have done such a great job ministering uh, to the benevolent needs in this body and in this community. And I've seen them give hours of their time shepherding people, caring for people, ministering to people, showing mercy to people, and providing them the necessary means. Strzok says, Indeed, deacons are to emulate our Lord's example of humble, loving service to needy people. Our Lord highly esteems the deacon's work, for it is essential to the life and witness of God's church. So all that to say, theologically, I told you there was two reasons, right, why I wanted to preach this series. The first of all was theological, and so theologically, the Bible plainly and simply establishes a two-office system of church government made up of or consisting of elders and deacons. Very simple, very plain, two offices, there's elders and there's deacons. That's the theological. Now let me move to the practical. We as a church have the awesome responsibility to examine men who God is raising up in the life of our church to serve potentially in these, one of these two offices, either the office of elder or the office of deacon. And we have uh, an opportunity right now to examine a group of guys who have been recently selected by the elders as candidates for elder and deacon. And uh, we do this every fall. Uh, we go away as elders, as pastoral staff, for a day or two to pray and to plan. And one of the things that we look forward to the most and we prioritize really at really the front end of, of, of anything else we do, we always make sure we take some time to evaluate uh, the up-and-coming leaders in our church and seek to recognize those who it appears to us that God has called and qualified to serve as elders and deacons. Again, it's not our job to make elders and deacons because it says, Acts twenty twenty eight. God makes them, we're simply to recognize them. And uh, I think the Bible makes it clear that the elders are to take the lead in selecting and appointing elders and deacons. We already saw that in Titus chapter 1, verse 5, that, that Paul told Titus to appoint elders. Uh, he was the ruling elder at the time, the pastor there. Um, Acts chapter 14, verse 23, um, we see the elders taking the lead in this. And when they had pointed elders for them in every church, talking about the apostles there, the, 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 the Paul and, and those guys, when they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So the elders need to take the lead in selecting and appointing elders and deacons, but the congregation should be included in the process. And we already read Acts chapter 6, verse 1 through 6, and what did the elders do? They came to the congregation and said, hey, help us by recommending some people who could serve in these roles. And we also see in Acts 15, verse 22, that it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church 
to choose men from among them to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. So again, you see the involvement of, of, the, of the church in that process. It doesn't, we don't see the elders just showing up and saying, oh, by the way, we picked some new elders and here they are. Deal with it. <laughs> like it or leave, right? That's not the idea at all here. Why is it so important that, that, that elders uh, include or work in unison with the body in this regard of, of appoint, selecting and appointing elders and deacons? Well, first of all, the people in the congregation are the ones who are required to submit and obey and follow the direction of the elders and deacons, and so they must consider them worthy to do so. Like, I'm going to have to submit to that guy. I'm going to have to, to, to obey that guy. I'm going to have to honor that guy. I'm going to have to appreciate that guy. You need to know who these people are. And then secondly, I think some in the congregation, some people in the congregation may have information about a prospective elder or deacon that the elders don't have, or they've maybe had some interaction with that particular individual that the elders haven't had, and so the congregation's input is essential. It's like, well, we didn't know that. We, we've never experienced that. We, we didn't know that about that person. And so, if you remember back in 1 Timothy 3, at the very heart of Paul's teaching on the qualifications of elders and deacons in 1 Timothy 3, there's a very straightforward command that we must heed as a church. He said very clearly, 1 Timothy 3.10, let these also first be, remember, tested, then let them serve if they're beyond reproach. That word tested there is the Greek word dakimazo, which is a word that was used to describe the process of testing metal to prove its genuineness. Uh, in, in ancient Greek literature, it was also uh, used to to refer to testing a person's credentials before they were allowed to serve in a public office. In other words, they needed to receive the stamp of approval from the other elders, from the body. And so Paul applied this analogy to the church by insisting that the character of a potential candidate for the office of elder or deacon must be thoroughly examined, must be carefully scrutinized to see whether or not they should be approved to serve in a particular uh, leadership position. Now, this is not anything that we're, uh, this is not a foreign concept because you think about the way the world does it, right? The standard procedure in the world is that before a person is allowed to perform a job that carries tremendous responsibility or, or requires exceptional skill or has some serious consequences, if you don't do it correctly, like a surgeon, <laughs> you don't want a surgeon working on you, who hasn't been qualified, who's not qualified, who hasn't been tested, right? Or, or a lawyer uh, dealing with your, uh, dealing with your um, uh, affairs or your investment, your broker, right? All these things that you write, you have to be licensed, you have to be certified, uh, you have to pass a very rigorous exam before uh, you can be entrusted with people's lives and material things. And so if the standards are, are, are that high for those who have responsibility of overseeing your health and, and, and your legal matters or your finances, how much higher the standards for those that have the responsibility of overseeing your soul and serving in Christ's church? And so we know that the job of, a, of an elder and even the responsibility of a deacon carries great responsibility, requires great skill, and if not done correctly, can result in the most tragic and terrible consequences. And I think that's why God demands that before a man is allowed to serve as an elder, as a deacon, he must be thoroughly and rigorously tested to see whether or not he's qualified for the job. And if he doesn't pass the test... If he doesn't get the, the, the stamp of approval from the congregation, then he has no business being appointed as an elder or deacon. We read the verse in 1 Timothy 5.22 about being careful not to lay hands on a person hastily, prematurely, quickly. This is not a decision you rush into. Again, Strzok says this, because of the crying need for church leaders, there's always pressure to make hasty appointments, but such appointments create more serious, long-lasting problems. In numerous cases of leadership, 
failure, excuse me, in numerous cases of leadership failure, the real problem is that unfit, unproven men were appointed too quickly to positions of spiritual leadership. Some of you have lived through that uh, in churches that you've been in in the past. And so that's why we must insist on biblically qualified men to serve as elders and deacons, even if, if it takes years for such men to develop. Listen, it's better to have no elders and no deacons than have the wrong ones. And so the pattern just we see laid out here, let me just summarize a little bit here. Um, it's really a four-step process. As I've studied the scriptures, it seems to break down very simply into four steps. How, how do you select and ordain elders and deacons in a local church? Well, number one, with the help of the congregation, the existing elders recognize men who have a desire to serve as elder or deacon and who appear to be spiritually qualified. By the way, you can recommend a person to us anytime you want. In fact, we've had that over the years, and I've appreciated uh, some people coming up to me and say, have you ever considered this man as an elder? Have you considered this man as a deacon? That's helpful. It kind of puts them on our radar. Um, and so feel free to recommend that uh, uh, at any time you'd like. Um, number two, I think after that man has been recognized, Number two, the elders test and examine them privately to determine whether or not they're qualified to serve. In other words, the, the elders got to do a little vetting process before they ever get to the, the congregation. And then thirdly, they present them to the church for their evaluation and affirmation. And then finally, they're formally installed or ordained as, as elders or deacons through prayer and the laying on of hands. We see that the laying on of hands is a simple um, it's just a picture, an image of an official commissioning by which elders entrust a man to God and, and to the work God has called him to. And it's just a, a, a practical way, uh, an observable way to, to show a personal, tangible sense of responsibility and fellowship between the men who are involved in leadership. That, that's, that's the laying on of hands. Presently, God has greatly blessed us. He's greatly blessed us with six elders and nine deacons. And uh, hopefully you all know who they are. And if you don't, I'm going to ask them to stand. First of all, I want to ask our existing elders, if you would stand right now. I know one of them is out of town. Tim, Tim Kemright is out of town. He's in Virginia seeing his son in college. But we have Rusty Cook and Tom Walters and, and John Anger and Tyler Jacobs and myself. And that totals six with Tim, like I said, out of town. town thank you, guys. Um, and then we have nine deacons. I'd like to ask the deacons to stand, if you would. Um, they're going to be scattered all over the place. They were meeting this morning uh, behind the scenes, as they always do. And I appreciate you guys so much. But it uh, looks like they're all pretty much all here. we got a couple missing. But uh, these are our deacons. Thank you, guys. Appreciate you uh, serving us the way you do. What we'd like to do is, to this existing leadership team, we are proposing to add four men, one elder and three deacons. And so on behalf of the elders, I want to present these four men to you as candidates for the office of elder and deacon. Our candidate for the office of elder is Mike Goins. So Mike, why don't you stand back up just to make sure everybody knows who Mike is. He was just standing up as a deacon, and uh, I had the privilege of walking in the deacon meeting this morning and saying, hey guys... Um, we're going to propose um, to give Mike a demotion. He's going from being a deacon to being an elder. He's going to have more responsibility. He's going, uh, uh, he's going to, you know, this is, a, I think, a very important principle that we understand that one of our elders said it so eloquently this morning before prayer was that, um, that becoming an elder is not an increase in rank, but it's increase in responsibility. It's not an increase in rank. It's not like, hey, Mike got a promotion. He's a higher rank now. No, he, he's got more responsibility. And in fact, it's a, it's a demotion to be a slave, a servant uh, of the flock. And so uh, I think most of you know Mike, and he's been um, a very faithful shepherd 
over the years. In many ways, his grow group is kind of a, a model of what we want to see all of our grow groups be. I've just developed a great, uh, uh, a great uh, flock of people who love each other and serve one another well. And a lot of that is a tribute to Mike's faithful shepherding of that group. And so, Mike, thank you. You can sit down. Um, and then our candidates for the office of deacon, and have you guys stand up, please. Ken Parkin, Mark Sanderson, and Eric Presley. So we've got Ken over here, Mark Sanderson, and Eric Presley. Thank you, guys. Uh, and these are men that we have... Um, observed over the years, stepping up and serving in various ways, a lot of which are behind the scenes that no one even knows about. But uh, these are men that uh, we have just been very grateful for, have great uh, respect for, and uh, think that they would be a great asset to our our deacon team. Um, I told our deacons, hey, we're going to try to get you some reinforcements here. Uh, Some guys that you can bring in here and teach them the ropes and harness them up and put them to work and and uh, so we're looking forward to see that. So how does this work, okay? Well, each of these men have humbly accepted our invitation to go through uh, this process of, of, of public testing to see if they're above reproach in the eyes of the congregation. I say, guys, I'm sorry, there's no easy way to do this. You just kind of feel like you're standing up in front of everybody in your underwear, okay? It's just, you know, it's like, here I am. Does, what do you guys think? It's, it's putting yourself out there. It's just saying, hey, am am I above reproach in the eyes of this congregation to serve as an elder, to serve as a deacon? And so just the fact that they would be willing to go through that process to me is a tribute to their character, their humility, um, their willingness to do this. Um, And so we're going to give you two weeks to to prayerfully evaluate these men. And uh, please, this is not a opportunity for you to say, hey, well, what do you think about? What do you think about this? And talk amongst yourselves. Listen, you've got everything you need to know in First Peter, or excuse me, First Timothy chapter 3. If you're going to interact with anybody, interact with God and his word, whether or not these men are qualified. This is not, um, this is not a popularity contest. This is not an election. Hey, are you going to vote for him? Are you going to vote for him? Who are you going to vote for, right? This is not anything like that. This is a testing of character based on the principles of God's word. So if you need to talk to anybody about any of these men, please come talk to me, come talk to our elders. If you have any questions, you have any concerns about anything you know of these men, um, anything that might disqualify them from serving as an elder or deacon in our church, then we want to ask you to please come talk to us privately about it or to put it in writing to us, okay? And, and that's been very helpful in the past when people have communicated to us. Either we, we would love to know if you're like, hey, we affirm these guys. Let us know that. That would be really helpful. Or, hey, I, I, I have a little bit of a question about this situation or this guy. Why? Because, again, you may have some information about a guy that we don't have or you've had some interaction with one of these guys that we haven't had. But listen, also keep this in mind that the elders may have, had some, may have some information on these guys or other men in our church or have had interaction with these guys or other men in our church that you haven't had. And again, so you're, the natural thought is, well, well, what about, how come you didn't pick that guy? How come you haven't presented this guy? And Right, we think all these things. And just, just at this point, uh, you have to trust us as elders that as we are trying to follow biblical principles here, um, there, there, there's probably a good reason why we may have not approached a certain guy for that office. The point is this, any valid objections or accusations that are biblically based, it's our responsibility as elders to consider personal biases will be ignored. Just letting you know. If you have personal biases against these guys for some reason, we don't care. (laughs) It's, It's a personal thing. It's a preference thing, right? But if you have biblical concerns, biblically based concerns, then, then let us know. And, um, if these men receive your stamp of approval, then our plan is in two Sundays from now, January 24th, we're going to officially install uh, these guys as elders and deacons um, to serve in our church. So guys, uh, folks, please pray. That's what we need to do more than anything else is just pray. 
that's the last uh, thing I have on your note sheet today. If you grabbed one, to just to, to thank the Lord. Thank the Lord for his gracious provision of a unified leadership team that we have and have had over the years. God's been very good to us. And ask God to give us wisdom and discernment as we seek to add to that team uh, with another elder and three more deacons. Well, the next two Sundays, what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk about specifically the roles, uh, the qualifications and the responsibilities of the elder next week, and then the following Sunday, I'm going to talk about the, the qualification, the responsibilities of a deacon, just so we'll have that clearly in our minds as we seek to evaluate these men according to God's word. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your goodness to us. Lord, thanks for not leaving us um, to figure this thing out on our own, uh, how we should be led, how we should, be, how we should function, um, what, what the organization or the government should be. Uh, of, of our local church. Lord, you've made it very clear in your word. And so, Lord, as we seek to implement the principles and apply the principles over these next two weeks, Lord, I pray that you would be uh, honored and glorified as we desire to have wisdom and, and discernment. Lord, you, you promise that if anyone lacks wisdom, uh, we should ask you and you'll give it to us. And so we ask you for that wisdom. And Lord, we know that this is a very serious step that we're uh, proposing to take by adding more men to our leadership team. And Lord, as the leaders go, so this church will go. And so I pray we would take this um, very seriously and uh, we would uh, think about it in a very humble, uh, biblical way. And Lord, I pray even specifically for um, other individuals in the church uh, who whenever you elevate one man over another, whenever you recognize one man and not another. Lord, we, we know the sinfulness of our hearts, that it's very easy to compare and to compete and to get frustrated or disappointed or disgruntled. And Lord, I just pray, Lord, that you would help us all remember the words of Christ to Peter when he questioned you about your will for John. Uh, and, and Jesus said, what's that to you? Lord, would that be our heart? Lord, that we would be content to find our identity in Christ and not necessarily to have an office or to be viewed in some position, Lord, but that we would just be content to serve you, whether we're elevated, whether we're recognized or not. And so, Lord, be, be glorified through this process, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.